Welcome to episode 258 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and this podcast is for anybody else that likes going out under the stars. So we have a few uh, Patreon thank you, Shane. It was like we when we last recorded, which was I think two or three weeks ago now, we had uh, Patreon uh, supporters uh, contact us and, and provide us with some support. Do you want to give a bit of a, a shout out? Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you to uh, Dennis and Liam as uh, new Patreon supporters. And then uh, thank you to Mark, who's uh, continuing with Patreon support. And as always, I'd like to thank all of the Patreon supporters. We definitely appreciate it. And, uh, um, you know, just helps us to keep the podcast trucking along here. Yeah, it's uh, it's most appreciated, I think, as, as many people realize by now. And in order to in order to put it out, like you could, I think, theoretically do one for free. I think, Shane, is that a f- you could do one for free, right? I can't remember if there was free hosting or not. If if there was, they'd probably inject uh, advertising and things like that. Or or we'd be limited to durations or how many people could actually yeah. download it. There, it, If there was no charge, the, it doesn't come without strings attached. Yeah. I think one of them that I had looked at way back when we were getting going, because we thought maybe we would do it just and not pay for anything at first, but I think you could only put up 12 or 24 episodes and then they would just sort of disappear into the mm. cosmic fog you as, as you uploaded new episodes. And then again, I think like you said, then we would be super limited to like 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And this way we can talk for as long or as short as, as we want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So how, how have your last uh, couple of weeks been? Did you change out of your summer shorts yet? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The summer shorts are, are packed away. Um, we're, I think we're starting to get into more seasonal temperatures, although um, it's odd to be, you know, the third week of September and we really haven't had a, like a good frost yet. So um, I don't think we're far away from that now, but um, yeah, the last couple of weeks I've been really busy with work actually, and I haven't done mm-hmm. a ton of observing, but I, I was able to get out for a couple of nights and a little bit of, uh, solar observing as well. Oh yeah. What were you looking at? Um, just planetary stuff from the backyard. I was looking at, uh, Saturn and Jupiter and, uh, the night that, uh, stands out for me, I, it was a pretty decent night. I think you were out too. We were texting back and forth and, um, I had my, uh, Burla back caster two mount out. So it's a T mount. So two telescopes. And, um, I took the Borg 71 FL and then the, uh, the 25 millimeter pencil Borg as well. <laughs> and, it, you know, I, the, the real observer, all I could say is why, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, why do you climb Everest? Because it's there. <laughs> So, um, the real observing was through the 71. I was more curious about, uh, kind of the, I don't know if you'd call it the capability or the, the limiting aspect of 25 millimeter aperture, uh, with the little Mm -hmm. telescope. Um, so maybe, you know, I'll talk mostly about the 71. Um, the, the views of Saturn were great. Uh, you know, I was able to get the Cassini division very easy, a little bit of the shadow of the ring on the planet. Uh, that Northern, uh, cloud band, uh, that's a little bit lighter, um, you know, is very apparent. And then on Jupiter, the equatorial bands, a little bit of the great red spot and a little bit of detail in like the polar, uh, regions as well. Um, so it was, it was quite nice. Um, but what was interesting was on the, um, the little 25 millimeter, again, I wasn't really sure, 
you know, what I could see or couldn't see. And, um, you know, at low power, um, which would have been about like, mm, let me just do the math here real quick. Uh, like seven times. So I was uh, using a 25 millimeter plossel and uh, at seven times Saturn just looked like sort of a slightly out of focus star. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it wasn't pinpoint. You could tell there was a, a little bit of shape there. <laughs> yeah. I kind of get that when I look at it naked eye. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was <laughs> just... nearly a naked eye view. <laughs> so anyway, that wasn't too exciting. Um, so I, I really cranked up the power, Chris, and we, we went up to about like 35 times or was it 25 times? I can't remember right around in that neighborhood. And, um, lo and behold, I was able to easily see the rings of Saturn, um, wow. no Cassini division, but I was able to see, um, like, you know, kind of on the inner edges, uh, on either side of the the planet, I was able to see a little bit of darkness and then the rings. So like certainly, um, like able to see the disc and then that separation. So I, I wasn't really sure what I would get, but I wasn't really expecting much. And I think, you know, I'll say that that exceeded my expectations. I, I knew it would look like kind of a football or something, you know, of that shape, but, um, to see again, that separation kind of surprised me. And then on Jupiter, the equatorial bands were pretty easy at that power. Yeah, but not a lot else of detail, you know, it, um, it's just, you know, you can't expect much from a 25 millimeter telescope. Um, but it was fun. Um, you know, I don't think I'll use it again for planetary observing. It was just more of an interesting little side experiment. Um, mm -hmm. you know, this little telescope, uh, you know, it's hard to really call it a telescope, I suppose, but, um, it's, it's wonderful for quick views of the moon, you know, something that, you know, the moon has so much detail. It really doesn't matter what aperture you're using, you know, you're going to see an awful lot. Um, and then it provides some just real nice wide field views, um, you know, of constellations and such. Uh, it, it, it really is a nice finder telescope, you know, like, a, you know, to put it as a finder on a larger scope. Um, but anyway, that was my one session. And then, um, you know, kind of the usual solar observing report, just there's so much going on on the sun. You know, there's, uh, there's been some really large prominences, um, and no shortage of detail every single day, whether it's white light or hydrogen alpha, there's just so many sunspots and, um, you know, other, other detail that you can observe right now. It's just been a ton of fun. Mm, cool. How about yeah, you? I, I know you were out getting some observing in. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it was Nicholas, uh, Louis de Lacay who contributed, um, I think like a few dozen objects to the Messier catalog. Uh, he was a Frenchman and he, he was observing at the Cape of Good Hope with a, with a half inch, I think. Oh yeah. Like 13 millimeter, uh, telescope anyway. Oh. So yeah, he measured like, uh, the first 10,000 double stars or variables. I think it was the double stars and other stars did like a catalog of the first 10,000 stars in the Southern hemisphere, a little, little tiny pencil board. Back mm. I, I suspect his was a much longer focal length than, than my yeah. F5. Yeah, I think it was six. like probably like four meters. I think I'm not yeah. kidding. I think it was yeah. like four meters and half an inch or something. So. Wow. That, that would definitely give you the looking through a soda straw effect. <laughs> Your fields of view would not be very wide. No, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been out observing. I've been getting up in the mornings and, uh, and observing from like 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Um, because, uh, sort of a couple of reasons, like the, just the way the weather has 
been panning out, like we've um, tended to have more and better skies and more clear and better skies during, during those hours. Mm -hmm. And then um, just as we were going into this uh, full moon period, I was, I was trying to work around that, that moon. So I think uh, I was chatting with one of the listeners and and sent a shot of my, my telescope pointed, uh, pointed at the moon, but yeah, I guess it was about a week and a half ago. Had a pretty good, pretty good session, and uh, decided that I was going to get up and try to observe a uh, bunch of different things. Ended up doing a sketch of uh, NGC's uh, 288 and 253 in Sculptor. Um, have you ever taken a look? So NGC 253 is this huge, like seventh magnitude galaxy, and then NGC 288 is a really uh, large and dim globular cluster. Uh, both uh, in Sculptor, and I think they're only about like uh, something like uh, two and a half or three degrees apart or something like that. Did you ever see those? I think I, I would have to check my notes. I think I've looked at 288 uh, from either Davin or, or Grasslands. I can't remember where I was, but I'm pretty sure I've seen 288. Yeah. They're, anyway, they're pretty neat. I did a uh, my first um, white on black sketch. Well, I, I, I sketched it a bunch of times. Um, you know, over the course of like an hour. And then I, uh, I, there were some other things I, I had tried to get, but I couldn't, um, because there were some other galaxies that I was trying to hunt down, but the conditions weren't ideal. I was kind of surprised I was able to get these two, um, because there was like a little bit of smoke or haze down towards the South. And these are, these are really South hugging objects. And I don't even know that I could get anything that's further South than these much, but, uh, anyway, so I, I went and then took my, uh, three or four sketches that I did of them and took them back and did a, did a good sketch using the white Conte uh, pastel on the black Derwent uh, sketch paper. Um, yeah, I sent that along to you. It's not a great photo of the sketch, but the sketch looks pretty decent. I think. Yeah, I think that's super cool. Um, it, it just gives you a better, like a more realistic uh, I, uh, perspective of what you saw, you know, with the black background and and then the white uh, uh, galaxy or sketch. I, I thought it was quite nice. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, it's it's tough to take the photograph of the black on or the white on black. I found um, so often. What I'd been doing in the past is taking the photograph of the uh, you know. Uh, black uh drawing or dark gray drawing or whatever you want to call it on the white paper or you know lighter colored paper and then uh, just reversing it um but this way i find it you know it, it sort of stays more true to the accuracy of what you see because you're not you're dealing in the right gradient right mm -hmm. but i found like it was really hard to take the photo of it so the paper was always coming off as as having some sort of tinge to it, but it's super black paper. But, you know, as anything, there is some reflective characteristics. So it's either reflecting sunlight or it's reflecting the light in the room. So anyway, I got to figure out how to take better photos of, of the sketches. Um, let's see. But yeah, that night um, I ended up observing those. And I, I was trying to hunt down some other galaxies and like dwarf galaxies and just trying to get the fields down. Might hit them back in the fall if we get a good night. And then uh, wasn't successful. And then I decided to take a look at, let's see, what did I do? I think I went and looked at a pile of different uh, globular clusters. Like I think I looked at like Messier um, 2 and I, I can't even remember. I was like really tired, but I think I peeled through a pile of 
globulars. There was one that I, I looked at a ton of globular clusters like M2 and M15, and then and I spent some time in M92 and M13. And I think there was some other ones in there too. Like I just kind of went and observed all these globular clusters, but that's one of the problems when you get up in the middle of the night, like sometimes you don't quite remember what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's uh, yeah. You, even a long session, sometimes I forget, you know, everything that I've looked at, um, which is why I like to usually have that little notepad and, you know, I'll write down some basics about, you know, what I observed, what eyepiece I was using, and then a light description because, you know, no matter what the, the human memory is a, a pretty terrible, uh, it is. you know, place to store information. <laughs> we forget a lot of things. Yeah. And th- these were like work nights too. So I was like working oh, during yeah. the day and then I was driving out to my site at night and then I was uh, setting up and then, and trying to go to bed early and then getting up in the middle of the night and then uh, observing for, uh, you know, two hours or a little more and then going to bed for a couple hours and then getting up and working. <laughs> I mean, did this for a few nights and was getting kind of a bit wonky, but, uh, but that night I had, I'm not sure why it was, but um you know, and I, I guess one of the things is, is that when you and I have noticed this before, and this, this is one of the reasons why I like to observe like this is that when you get up in the middle of the night and just have your red light and nobody else is around, like I was just around by myself and, uh, and there's no other lights, just your red light, just you, and nobody's turning on bright lights and you haven't been exposed to any bright lights in, you know, six or eight hours or whatever, you get like super dark adopted. And I took a look at the veil, just, I was just like, oh, I wonder if I could just find it. I kind of, you know, it's one of those objects. Sometimes I find it really hard to locate and sometimes I can just nail it. Um, and so I, I thought I, oh, I think I have it. So I'll, uh, I was using like my 32 millimeter, uh, Masiyama and thought, oh, I'll just throw in the O3 just to see how much of a pop I get. And it was, it was so weird looking it was i think one of the best views i ever had but it looks so fake i didn't do a sketch of it i kind of wish i had now but it was i thought i was running it out of darkness but it wasn't quite as close to sunrise as i thought but anyway it just looks so fake like it just had like these you know very broad and um almost cartoon like contours to it um i'd never seen it like that before i was like wow that's really weird this is an object i've looked at many, many times, but, uh, that was one of the, um, more interesting views of it. I've, I've had, so I want to kind of get back to it. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was just that night because I, I'm wondering if it was because there was this little bit of, there was just this little bit of, um, smoke, just a bit of smoke and it was high up, but I think maybe it was, um, like blurring out, like maybe the delicate features and making them, um, you know, kind of more rounded, but it was, it was the strangest thing I've ever seen. And it was, it was very bright, like with the O3 filter. And I was surprised how bright it was in the four inch. Oh, that sounds like a pretty, pretty cool uh, observation. Um, you know, it, it is, it, it's kind of a, a good point about just getting out to observe, uh, regardless of say, you know, what the clear sky chart is saying or anything along those lines, because you just never know. And, and some nights the, the, like everything just seems to work. And all of a sudden you get these incredible views, uh, you know, maybe once in a lifetime or once in a year sort of views and it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, it was kind of neat. So that was the NGC 6992 slash 6995 section. I, I could see the other section that goes through 
uh, 52 SIG, and I could see the uh, Pickering's triangle as well. Uh, but that that uh, brighter arcing section was just uh, was just ridiculous. And then I thought it was brightening up a bit, but I'm thinking now we've had a lot of aurora. And I'm thinking it was aurora maybe that was kicking up a little. So I mm-hmm. thought it was getting bright, and I was like, oh well, uh, Mars was just about clearing the trees. So I went off and I forget what I looked at. I just kind of poked around the sky, and then uh, did take a look at Mars, and I was I was really surprised that I could start to see some, um, some detail on it. And I was just set up on my deck with my lightweight, uh, geared tripod. I was really just set up to do deep sky observing, not planetary observing, didn't have any of my planetary eyepieces out or anything. And I was just like, huh, that's looking pretty good. I was, I was kind of surprised. Have you had a good view of Mars yet? No, no, I have not. Um, I haven't been up late enough really to see it. And, um, you know, my view to the East is obstructed. So in order for me to see anything, it has to be about 25 to 30 degrees up. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'll be waiting a little while to see Mars from the backyard. Um, I might head out of the city just to get a better view of the horizon though, to start observing it. Yeah. Yeah. You should, I mean, you should come out. Um, cause I think it was, might've been the next night or the following night, or maybe I had a couple nights on it. Um, I set up my, uh, Borg, whatever Nate that was, I think I sent you a photo. I put the Borg up, yeah, um, which is my five inch apocromat. Um, just because it was curious to see, um, what I'd be able to, uh, what I'd be able to get with it. So, uh, again, I set it up, it was actually, uh, poor conditions, mm-hmm. um, but it was set to get really good after midnight. And, uh, so I went to bed and I got up and it was supposed to be totally clear with like above average transparency and such, but it was like, there was like a thin layer of cloud just like over the entire sky. Now I think some of it might've been smoke, but I think that it was mostly this, this thin layer of cloud. So you could see like maybe like within the moon is pretty much full or close to it. You could see like maybe a few dozen stars and then the planets. And I was like, huh. So I took, uh, I took a pretty good view of Jupiter. I did a sketch of that. And uh, it was a good night for viewing Jupiter. I was able to, to view it at 150 power using the 5XW uh, Pentax. And what I did is I, uh, I put the contrast booster on and it looked really good. I had uh, purposely set the alarm for whatever time it was, like 10 to 2 or something, because I knew that the red spot would be transiting and that I'd see all four moons. So I did this sketch of the four moons um, plus the red spot. Did I send that one to you? I can't remember. Mm, I think you did. Yeah, I do remember that one. And then uh, I had some pretty good detail on it. I posted it to the uh, Astro Sketchers list at the, at the RESC. And then I did a, I did a sketch of Mars using um, let's see, using the Mars filter plus the uh plus the contrast booster i think i sent that one to you yeah yeah i do remember that one too yeah that was a good sketch yeah and i was able to see uh you know all kinds of different features like i was able to um you know just pick up some of amazonas and some of the other uh details on on the planet there so yeah that was that was pretty good yeah i'm not sure did uh I wonder, would you be able to maybe send those out on the, uh, on the Twitter sphere? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I can definitely do that. Yeah. I'm just looking here. Yeah. So that was September 11th that I was observing Jupiter. 
And then let's see. Oh, I guess it was Mars the night before in the 100 millimeter is what I was looking at. But I did observe Mars in the um, in the Borg as well. But the seeing conditions uh, started to, to deteriorate. But I did have a reasonably good view. So I had view of Mars and did a sketch on the 10th through the 100 mil using uh, 145 power. But um, yeah, I was, I was able to see like the polar hood, the south polar cap and Solus Lacus and Amazonas and Merithrium and uh, Chris or Chris, or Chrissy, mm-hmm. um, Nihilus Lacus, uh, Mare Catalium. Um, you know, some pretty good, some pretty good details there are starting to uh, come out. I was kind of surprised. Yeah. What I was able to uh, pull out with the old, uh, yeah, with, uh, with the old Mars, just, uh, just being, I think 10.4 arc, uh, arc minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to grow quite a bit more from that. So if you're pulling out that detail now, it's just really going to get better and better. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I posted that up and I think some people are kind of surprised like, Whoa, that's a lot of detail in a hundred mil, but I think I observed it the night I was observing Mars. And I think that's why I'm a little confused over which night I was observing, which planet and which gave me the best views was that on the Mars night, I did close to, I think, like two and a half or two and three quarter hours. And I had about seven good minutes. <laughs> so wow. like just on Mars for like almost a few hours, you know, and you just get like this shot of detail and then it would just, you know, turn back to back to mush. And then I'd, you know, sort of go, go back at it. I think I did sketch Mars in, in the, oh yeah, I did sketch Mars in the five inch, but you know what I tried to do? I, I wrecked my sketch because I tried to do it with like color pencils and stuff. And that is really hard to do. And my sketch was just terrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I didn't, uh, didn't put it out. And then, yeah, this Friday, it, it just looked totally bleak. Did you observe on Friday? Uh, no, no, I did not. I was, uh, I was just spent from the week at work and I, it was looking not bad when I went to take the dog out just before bed, but I was already, uh, you know, that was one of the nights when my head hit the pillow. I'm pretty sure I was snoring within about four seconds. So, yeah, it was, it was one of those nights where it, it wasn't supposed to be good. There was a chance it might, it might clear like around midnight or so. Uh, according to clear sky clock and the forecast was just for clouds and it was cloudy and uh, went out for a walk and then got back from the walk at like, um, you know, seven 30 or quarter to eight. And it was getting fairly dark. And just as it's getting dark, the clouds are just going, they're just like disintegrating. Huh. And I was like setting up. So <laughs> take the hundred millimeter up the hill and uh, put it on the Mount and, um, yeah, get it all, get it all set to go. I mean, if, if it hadn't cleared up anymore, I wouldn't even have observed, but I was like, I think it is clearing, but it was one of those nights where unless you were at like right at a dark site, ready to observe you, you would never drive out and take advantage of it. It would just, you would probably think you're wasting your, your time and, mm. and gas money. And so, uh, yeah, I, I got set up and was able to do about an hour or maybe a little more. And, uh, just toured around, took a look at uh, Double Cluster, took a look at Kemble's Cascade, took up Pasmino's Cluster, and um, Messier 33, the Triangle Galaxy, and uh, took a look at Summer Beehive. Um, spent some time on Messier 31, 
like it was really, really clear to, to the North. So to towards um, the North at this time, you're like, that's my darkest piece of sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can get well up into the sixth magnitude uh, limiting visual uh, naked eye magnitude there. And uh, like, I'm able to not see like, not see stars in M31, but I can see like some of those really faint foreground stars that you see in like the deep sky photos. And then I can start to kind of link out some of the arm features in, uh, in M31. I spent a lot of time observing it. So, you know, looking at uh, uh, M110 and M32 that, that are in orbit there, as well as uh, the big star cluster NGC 2006. Uh, some of the detail in the NGC 206 region. So yeah, that was that was pretty cool. And then I was uh, I was showing my wife M13 and M92, uh, like using some relatively high power, and they're fairly high up. And that area of the sky is pretty dark and clear too for me. And uh, and she's usually the person who says, "Oh, you're just looking at faint fuzzy stuff," but we're able to like resolve them um, pretty decently, like with the uh, what did I put on there, like 100 power, and uh, we were like she was able to see stars like in M13, no problem. So it was like getting really good resolution um, even for a four inch. So that, that was like pretty decent considering uh, that night was, was pretty much uh, looking like a scratch. Like it wasn't even going to be an observing night. So. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. One thing I did is I've always been using the, uh, for the most part, the the TAC 100 DC, which is a four inch refractor on the AZ GTI. And I've had more than one person write, to say the least. I've had several people write. Um, I think Ryan and, and Wade, and I think there's a few other people over time who have written to ask um, how much more weight or or what else could be mounted on the AZ GTI uh, Skywatcher mount. And, you know, I've kind of said that I've hemmed and hawed for a long time to put the Borg 5-inch on there. And so I finally said, ah, screw it. I'll just try it. I'll put the Borg on there just to see what it's like. And it worked. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm guessing you're pushing the limits. I sometimes, um, even the hundred millimeter, I feel like, uh, is pushing the limits a little bit of that mount. Um, yeah, especially at higher powers it, you know, it's, there's definitely some dampening time there when you're focusing and such. Yeah, it, it works, but I would not buy the AZ GTI for a scope. That's any, that's like, not even half a pound more than that, you know, like you said, it's, it's pushing it and, you know, can you use a bigger scope? Yeah. But like I had some mild wind, I think like 13 K 19 K winds. And, and when the 19 K winds would hit, it would just like, it was irritating. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's, and this is on a steel tripod, you know, totally locked down, blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's as good as you can make, the, uh, the AZ GTI as far as mounting goes. So um, I think a couple people were asking about some, uh, I think somebody was asking about attack DZ and attack DL and somebody was asking about another telescope. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't get the AZ GTI for anything larger than attack DC. But I think that's one of the great things with the attack DC is you can put it on a pretty lightweight mount. And, and I do like the AZ GTI. It's pretty flexible and for for somebody who owns a whole pile of small scopes, I think uh, I think it's a great little mount for really small scopes like any of these little Borgs, like the Borg Minis and the Borg Seventy One, and and uh, any of those. I really think something like the Borg Ninety Millimeter would that would probably be like 
that would probably be like the best telescope. That would probably be about as big a telescope that I think would work spectacularly on it. Um, but I think the TAC DC, even stripped down, because I've taken some parts off it, and I've bought the lightest rings and the lightest rail that humanly possible. Um, yeah, it kind of pushes it a little bit, but it's fine. Like, I don't mind like a two second dampening time because it is tracking, yeah. but with, with the, uh, with the Borg five inch on it, um, I'd say I was at least doubling, maybe tripling the dampening time and the impact of the wind was mm-hmm. boy, like I, I might use it. Like, I, I'm not going to say I would never do that again, but it would have to be like a super still evening. Like mm-hmm. if it was totally still and there was no wind at all and you know i wasn't gonna you know maybe it's like um not the best seeing conditions so i'm not going to run over 150 power yeah i would use that combination but if i really want high power um the the tac 100 um honestly the the difference is invisible in fact the tac 100 i think outperforms the borg five inch um, when using that mount, because the the mount is compromising its its usage um, too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, uh, that's a, a good little experiment, and now we sort of know, I guess, the limit. And the other thing too about the Borg one twenty five is I don't think there's a lighter one hundred and twenty five millimeter telescope out there either. So no, if you're running any other one twenty five, it's there's just no way that that mount would would handle it then. Yeah, I would like to get like a like a more beefy mount um, and get it permanently mounted up uh, some way somehow because mm-hmm. it is it's a that's a pretty cool scope. Like even when you you throw it up after using the the TAC uh, 100 DC, you know the TAC 100 DC kind of looks like a traditional refractor with the long skinny tube, whatever. But then when you put the Borg up because it has um, a very uh, well it the white part of the tube is very short. I think it's like 640 millimeters. And so the actual white part of the tube is smaller than the white part of the tube on the tack, but the tube diameter is like more than an inch larger. So it, it looks like a really weird telescope, like a bit of a cannon, you know, versus a, like a, like a beautiful uh, telescope silhouette. So it is kind of a funny, funny instrument but man like you really notice that difference in weight like you know like i i don't mind that it's just a few pounds heavier it's about i guess it's really about three pounds heavier um you think that's not gonna be much but the tac 100 at uh, i think mine's weighing in at like 5.9 pounds and i keep the rings on it i don't even bother taking the rings off it so that adds maybe another pound and a half so it's running like just over seven pounds and Mm -hmm. uh just feels kind of like nothing because it's pretty spelt and it's like well balanced and everything. But then when you grab the uh the Borg, even without the rings, um, it just like it's so much bigger and bulkier. Like it, it only weighs maybe two pounds more or something in like that kind of comparison. But it's kind of surprising. Like it really makes you think twice about putting it up, especially when like honestly, the performance between uh, a five-inch apocromat and a four-inch is uh is so so close like right yeah uh, it's surprising how close they are yeah no that's interesting yeah um, when i when i had the 120 uh and my 102 millimeter i didn't see a huge difference but i this was all backyard observing too i wasn't uh, doing any dark sky stuff which that probably would start to separate a little bit there mm. yeah i was thinking about it and i think 
the kind of like the comparison is like um I would I would love to look through your 71 and something like a 90 millimeter. So I think that that is a nice jump. You know, I feel like there's a lot of these 70 odd millimeter scopes around now. And that is, you know, like a 70 millimeter scope isn't appreciably bigger than a lot of these short tube 60s. Like I have the TAC FS60 and I feel like going to the 70 millimeter, you're not really losing that much field of view. And really, they're not that much larger. So I feel like something in the 70 millimeter class is like the ultimate portable scope now. And then um, when you jump up, um, you want to go to like a 90 at least. And then yep. if you go to 100 millimeter, you're really you're really going to notice a difference because you've basically, um, you know, uh, gone up like more than a third of the size or, you know, it's like a 50% increase or something like that in, in the size of the instrument. Yeah. Well, I've sort of revectored my little refractor collection. So when I got the Borg 71, um, I was starting to question, do I need my William optic 61 anymore? Cause my, my little 61 millimeter was super portable, very nice wide field. Um, so I, I had the mount side by side on a T mount doing a comparison and the 71 was noticeably, um, uh, you, you could just see the impacts of that larger aperture, uh, views of the planets were much better, you know, higher resolution. Um, it, it was just more enjoyable and it was mm -hmm. definitely able to pull in, uh, fainter stars and, um, uh, the fields of view while the William optic was a little bit wider, it wasn't substantial to me. And, um, so as such, the 61 has been sold. Uh, the 71 is just, in my opinion, a, a superior instrument. Um, and then, you know, my next hop really is the 102. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, for an appreciable difference from the 102, I'm now thinking, you know, if I want that larger aperture, it's got to be probably in that 130 to 140-ish range or 130 to 150. Yeah. Um, and now you're starting to talk though, uh, you know, that's a pretty large tube yeah. and a heavy telescope and, you know, it starts to change the whole situation, uh, around mounting it too. Like, you know, yeah. I have to think about, can my mounts even handle something, that, <laughs> you know, that yeah. big and heavy. So, um, so for now, you know, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Like I, I, you know, have the little 50 millimeter Borg for rich field 71 for ultimate portability. I still have the tax 76, which is an incredible three inch telescope. Um, yeah. and then the one Oh two, which is kind of more the, the dark site, uh, telescope or, yeah. you know, larger aperture for some planetary, uh, observing. Yeah. I think like knowing what I know now, you know, and, and I don't know if I'll eventually, you know, go this road or not, but I really think that like the, the small, like mini Borg is, I got to admit that scope is so awesome. The little 50 millimeter is so awesome and so much fun. and was so cool to put together and um, really not that much money. Sorry, you're going to say something. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Just, just, that is like just such a cool mini scope that um, I'm surprised how much I love and enjoy that scope. I like looking at it. Like sometimes I just like, look at them like this, this is just so cool. <laughs> and then like, there's been so many nights where oh, this is just a throwaway night and um, it's just not that good for much of anything. I'm just going to cruise around or I get up in the middle of the night and holy cow, like now it's like spectacularly clear and Orion's up and 
And I, I want something that's more than a binocular, but it's really hard to like kind of haul the telescope out in the middle of the night and set it up. Like I got to carry stuff like whatever it is, like 70 or 80 feet to, to my observing site. And, and it's up, it's up kind of a moderately steep hill, eh? <laughs> moderately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not, yeah. It's not like that steep, but you know, it's, it's still like, it's a bit of a haul and it's going to take some time, but yeah. I can, I can grab that mini Borg and I can literally throw it in the side pocket of my observing pants and I can grab my eyepiece case and I can grab my super lightweight Altaz mount and I can run up the hill and I can be observing in literally five minutes, um, with a little telescope that I could put filters on. And that's, I've done that so many times. Like I've probably, since you made that scope up for me and then I kind of tinkered with I bet you and that's just two years now I think we've had those something like yep, that yeah yeah easily I've done 24 or 30 nights with it that I otherwise just wouldn't even have observed and I've done like all kinds of sketches with it so anyway that that's sort of my that's sort of my uh my soapbox on on that and then I think to go up from there like I've I've compared my 60 to it there's a huge jump to the 60, but mm-hmm. with so many of these really good little 70, 72 millimeters around now versus when I bought my 60, I think I probably would go with something like, you know, I know you bought the 71 Borg. I think I would just go whole hog and get the 72 Borg mm-hmm. or like one of these AstroTech 72s because they all look really nice. And then uh, I think that that is like a significant jump over the 50. So going to the oh, 60, yeah. I can see, but yeah. What were we going to say? I, I just said, yeah, uh, totally agreeing. The The neat thing though about your 60 tack is the uh, the Q extender that you can insert yeah. and uh, have a long focal length 60 that is pretty darn close to perfect in terms of optical performance. And, uh, you know, a 60 millimeter, especially a long focal length one really does well on the planets, I think. And, uh, yeah. you know, there's still a place for those for sure. I, I think so. But I think if I was, if I was, you know, this is sort of like the ultimate win the lottery wish list, yeah, kind of thing, yeah. then I think I would go with like the FOA or whatever it's called 60. Um, yeah. yeah I, I think I would go with something like that for that ultimate little planetary scope. But anyway, like just as far as like, you know, what, what I've experienced and what I'd actually get now is, yeah, I do another Borg 50 in a heartbeat. And then I do uh, something in the 70 to 72 ish range, maybe even like an old 77 Borg, um, something super light. And then I really think like the four inch planetary refractor is like, it is kind of like an ultimate scope in a way. If you look around, like, and I've owned uh, like a six inch, high-end Max Utov, and uh, I've looked through a lot, lot of other like uh, six, seven, eight-inch uh, re- refractors, reflectors, and schmidt cassegrains I, I think that the four-inch really does kind of, um, you know, push those out of the of the realm because uh, the four-inch just can do uh, so, so well um, on the planets immediately without much cool down. And like mm-hmm. the, the images are just uh, that spectacular without, without really having to, to fuss too much. And then I think, um, yeah, because that, uh, four inch is going to be in the sort of the F seven and a half to F maybe eight or nine or whatever it ends up being, um, you know, then I would, I would want to have like something like, a like a six inch F five, um, acromat, mm-hmm. um, for, for like some better, uh, wide field, uh, you know, sort of low power, but, but light grasp kind of views because kind of like you, you know, I, I think you really need to go 
up about 40% in aperture to really notice enough of a difference. And I think between the 50 to the 70 odd, I think you'll get that. And then by going to the 70 odd millimeter to hundred, you get that same 40, 40% jump. And then, then to go from the hundred or whatever it is, like and there's even 105 millimeter scopes around by like CA, CFF or whatever they're called. Um, then I think you really want to go to that six inch and then you'll really like see, see that pop again, or, or like a six inch uh, apple. But I, I think like the, I was really surprised how close the four inch to the five inch was. And I feel like the five inch to the six inch would be uh, pretty close. Like I think in order to get another bump from the five inch, I would really have to go to like something 170 millimeters or, or larger. Like I would really have to sort of blow beyond that six inch range now. Like I don't, I had often thought I would go to a six inch mm-hmm. just to kind of have, cause they're available, but I don't know, like after comparing the four and the five inch now, like, and I have sort of compared it in my head and I've compared it sort of side by side in the field now, I, boy, I think you'd, you'd have to go substantially larger really to, uh, to see the pop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I've thought about the six inch an awful lot and you know, the, the stellar view M2C mount that I have, I don't think would be enough for a telescope that large. Yeah. Um, now I do have that, uh, Los Mandy GM nine mount, which would handle it no problem, but you know, now you're talking about a, a pretty big, heavy mount with a big counterweight on it and it's equatorial, which I don't always love. So for those yeah. reasons, I've kind of stayed away. Um, and really I love my TSA 102. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I could easily look through that for the rest of my life and not want for more. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm just going to stick on that path for now. And at some point in the future, I might, you know, get bored or decide that I, I really want the six inch, but for now I'm, I'm quite pleased with, um, with the performance of the four inch. Yeah. Saw so that, uh, Phil and I was chatting with Philly. He bought one of the 80 millimeter F5 ST80 type, uh, old, uh, old sky watchers there. Um, yeah, they're, they're kind of neat scopes, eh? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they are quite capable. Um, the price point on them is phenomenal. You know, we've, we've recommended them many times as a, a pretty good entry-level telescope. Um, sometimes you have to do a little bit of work to them, especially if you want to, to use two inch accessories. But, um, I tell you for the, the performance versus the cost, they're, they're a great deal. And Phil got an outstanding deal on his, he picked yeah. up a used one and I don't know if you would ever find a, a, you know, a lower price than what he got it for. So congrats to him for that find. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was 29 pounds sterling, which I don't know, it's like $50 Canadian or something like that, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that that's a good deal. But then, you know, and and I've uh, gone and bought a couple of these, and you know, I guess it was about two years ago, and then um, modified them a, a little bit by taking them apart, blackening some of the insides, centering the lenses, and then I took the better one and shipped it down to my nephews. So uh, they've kind of been trading it around and and using it for looking at Jupiter and and Saturn and, and, uh, just panning around the Milky way. And I bought them some beginner astronomy books and they, they've been having a good time with it. Um, but they're just using it in the one and a quarter inch mode. I went and just for, um, sort of nostalgic reasons, cause I had, I had had one years ago, I had sold it, um, actually sold it to the guy who does the editing on, on the calendar on the, or he does the graphic de- design on the calendar that I'm the editor for anyway. And, uh, 
yeah, so I, I had uh, modified um, that one back in the day and then I always wanted a two inch focuser for it and finally bought a new one, put a two inch focuser on it. And that costs a lot of money though. And when I was doing this like two years ago, I think the focuser at the time was like 130 something American. So 150 American was shipping, which is, you know, like you're getting around $200 Canadian once it was all said and done, but I got the scope for 99 bucks new. So, you know, it's like a $300 telescope that can do six degrees. So not too bad, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm kind of, you know, it was sort of like a fun little project to do, but now, you know, and, and soon after I, I had finished that, I saw that AstroTech and AstroTech is the I think it's a house brand of Astronomics, who, who's the sponsor of Cloudy Nights. Isn't that the way it works? They just sell through yeah. there? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, and but I think there's others that are selling these, but I think they have the best price on uh, what's called the AT72ED. And I, I see the full price is, I think it's like $329 American dollars. And then um, I know from time to time they've had it for $299, I think. So I got to say that, you know, that two ninety nine, once you factor in shipping and everything, is I think it's pretty much an identical price as an ST eighty um, and the associated hardware, and and adding on a two inch focuser. Which, by the way, like adding on the two inch focuser, it's kind of plug and pray, and it, mine's not really that centered, so it really ends up making the ST eighty a, a low power instrument from a from a low power instrument to a really low power instrument, because I noticed on the planets, things aren't as sharp as they were when I just had Mm -hmm. the uh, manufacturer one, a quarter inch eyepiece uh, holder. So I I think that now the the way to go is these 72 EDs. Um, It -hmm. just, I I think it makes a lot more sense because you get the little telescope. It's got ED glass. It's, I think it's the more affordable ED glass, like the FPL 51 or something or shot glass or, whatever, whatever it is. I've had telescopes with that glass before. I've never looked through a 72 ED by AstroTech. I would love to though. Um, but we've had, I think four or five listeners buy that scope and send pictures and write in about it being a really good little scope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think with the 80 Acromat F5, I think probably with it being an Acromat and, and some of the other, um, compromises with those little scopes, I think the 72 ED is, is probably um, a, a slightly better option if you own all the two-inch accessories already. I'm going to put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're, you know, if you're into inch and a quarter, um, which I really am for the most part, um, then yeah, the stock ST80 is a, is a pretty good buy. But it is really hard to argue against these new AT telescopes, either the 60 or the the 70 millimeter class, because you are getting a you know an apochromat with um, you know I think rotating focuser two inch yeah. you know like there's just a lot going for those and Mounting the price hardware. point is, is so good. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's. It's a telescope that you don't have to fiddle around with. It'll yeah. just probably be great out of the box. Whereas the ST80 does require a little bit of love and care to up the performance. Yeah. So I did that when I when I sent the one down to my nephews, I modified it. I did all those little like blackening the whatever inside. I took the lens apart and I centered it and I did all that kind of stuff. And so I actually compare I had I bought two. So I bought one for me and I bought one I was going to give them and <laughs> And I shouldn't say this, I got a Hemden hot, but I did send them. I felt like guilty. So I sent them the better one 
Mm-hmm. And so I sent them one. It just had slightly better color correction. It had slightly better sharpness. And I com- I was like comparing it on Mars and double stars and color rendition. Yeah. I was able to run, I can run mine to 80 power and that's it. And on the one I sent down, it can really run at about 100 or 110, maybe even 120 on a really good night, which is pretty good for an 80 millimeter anyway. So there are some pretty good ST80s out there. And if you kind of play around with them a bit, you can uh, you can optimize them. But like since I'm buying it as a gift and I'm only going to be giving it with a, with 1.25 or one and a quarter eyepieces, I think that is a is probably a better option to go with because it is less expensive and then I also bought them like a killer mount for it, like a custom mount from, I think I bought it from First Light Optics in the UK or somewhere. It was like a custom, I forget, I think it's called an EZ4 or an EZ5, but you can't get them in North America. It's like, a, you know what it's like? It's like a cross between, well, I don't know. It's closer to my, it's very close to my Takahashi Lapides. It's mm-hmm. very, very similar to what that mount is. Very, very similar. And I think it was less than 250 Canadian dollars. So I had to had to do that for them. So I got them an awesome mount instead of slightly more expensive telescopes. There we go. Cool. Getting ready to teach my class this week. First one in person since the pandemic. That should be interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Getting back to more normal methods of operating. Yeah. So I brought a scope with me, came, came back and back in the back home right now, not at my dark site and uh, get, yeah, doing this recording today, going to prep my class this afternoon and brought uh, my little telescope and uh, hope to kind of show people uh, Mars and or not Mars, but I'll show them. Um, let's see, Saturn and, and Jupiter through the 60. I debated bringing the hundred millimeter in. Um, I don't know. I, I think just people just to see these, the rings and and the bands and the moons of Jupiter. I think the 60 is enough. Yeah, for sure. You know, that'll show a ton of detail and um, easier telescope to lug around too, which is always nice. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Anything to add to uh, this episode, Shane? No, that's it, Chris. All right. Thanks, Shane. Thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to subscribe. We always appreciate uh, the, the Patreon support from the folks who who have supported us in the past uh, from new folks and, and people who have renewed their, uh, their Patreon uh, support. Um, if anybody wants to reach us with your observing reports, please write us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. 